Well, good morning, church. Uh, as Dan mentioned, my name is Jason. I'm one of the elders here. I am a coffee-drinking, geeky nerd who loves God, math, and science fiction. Uh, my first question is usually, do you know Jesus? And my second question is then, do you know Star Trek? So I'm really glad you're with us. We're going to dive right in. Um, on Thursday, I went about three hours over, so we're going to just get going here. So we are in week two of a two-week series called Faith and Reason. We live in an age of skepticism where people seem to question everything. And so what we're trying to do is spend a little bit of time looking at the reason behind our faith. Last week, we asked the question is, how do I know the Bible is true? And this week, we're looking at the question of how do I know the resurrection is real? So we looked at 1 Peter 3:15 and 16, which says, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Peter uses the term apologia, which is uh, Greek for uh, providing a defense or challenging a lie. And so what Peter is telling us to do is to make sure that we can defend our faith when someone questions it. And we call this type of theological study apologetics. We're not apologizing uh, for our faith. Instead, what we're doing is we're providing a reason for our faith gently and respectfully. So after last week's lesson, a friend of mine and a, a, one of the folks on staff uh, told me that I should write a book uh, about uh, the Bible and about these different things. And my first response was, no, 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 no. There are plenty of books out there on apologetics. Uh, I don't need to do that. But then I thought of a title, and I decided, oh, I need to write this book. And the book is, Why the Bible Isn't Dumb. It's Probably You. But since I haven't finished that or even started it, uh, I did want to share some other resources with you. Uh, you can scan this QR code or just go to vrl.church slash faith and reason, and there are a number of resources there. There are study Bibles, books on apologetics, uh, internet resources, a lot of different things. So if you're curious and you want to dive a little bit deeper into this topic, I encourage you to go ahead and check that out. So this week, we're going to be looking at the question of how do I know that the resurrection is real? And some of you may be wondering, do we even need to really look at this question? Well, the, the answer is we do, because there are a lot of people out there who seem to believe that all religions are basically the same, and they're not. Christianity in particular is unique because it plants itself in history and invites us to examine that history. So Christianity's core isn't about enlightenment or states of consciousness or practice of law, uh, which are the things that you see, the themes you see in Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam. Christianity has aspects of those, but that's not its core. At the core of Christianity is one thing, Christ's resurrection. Disprove that, you know, find a tomb with bones in it or something like that, and it's time to be done. It's time to turn out the lights and just be done and just say game over. In fact, C.S. Lewis stated it this way, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So we need to ask, how do I know that the resurrection is true? Because if it isn't, we might as well go home and be done. But if it is, then it should be absolutely life-changing. Now, before I go too much further, I do have a confession to make. I really like forensic shows. Not dramas like, you know, the Blue Blood group or whatever it is, but the actual things like court TV and investigate discovery, the forensic files. Uh, my wife thinks I'm sick. 
and she's not wrong, uh, because these shows are not about a candy bar that went missing. They're typically about some sort of grisly murder and how they found, caught, and convicted the bad guy. And for whatever reason, I find these shows endlessly fascinating. In fact, if it weren't for computers, I probably would have become an attorney. Um, I really do like to make a case and debate it, um, although for the record, I never argue. I simply explain why I'm right. <laughs> so because of my love for these types of things, we're going to approach this week's question as if we're approaching a court case. So last week it was all about busting myths. This week we're going to make a case for the resurrection of Christ. I will be playing the part of the attorney on this journey, trying to prove the case for Christ, and you will be part of the journey and have to decide whether or not you believe it. So the first thing you have to ask is, is there enough evidence even to bring this to a courtroom? Before going to trial, any good attorney is going to say, do I have enough evidence to convict? And there are definitely people out there who say, no, there's not enough evidence out there. Uh, but these are the same people who say things like, well, I'll only believe it if I have a video of it, um, and, and then I'll believe it. R really? I mean, it, we, we have people who don't believe that we went to the moon and there's video of that. We have people who don't believe airplanes flew into the Twin Towers on 9-11, and we have video for that. What makes you think that getting into a blue police box that's bigger on the inside and going back in time and videotaping Christ and showing it to people is going to convince anybody? Those same people will say, well, if I could see the miracles, then I'd believe it. Really? I mean, the religious leaders at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they saw the miracles. They didn't question the miracles. They believed the miracles. They just didn't believe that Jesus was God's son. And the, the list goes on. You, well, I need 100% certainty. No, you don't. Nothing in life has 100% certainty. If that were the case, we wouldn't have marriage. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't get in cars or fly on airplanes. Or some people say, well, if God came down and sat beside me and told me, then I'd believe. Okay, well, first, if God did that, you'd be dead. And then second, you'd start to doubt as soon as he left. If you're not sure about that, go look up the prophet Isaiah. He'll be able to tell you just how quickly doubt can enter into the human mind. And again, the list goes on. So let's be careful as we're looking at this, not to put unrealistic evidentiary burdens upon the resurrection. So you may be wondering, well, what kinds of evidence are acceptable? Well, I'm glad you asked. So basically, there are two classifications of evidence. There's direct evidence and there's circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence is something that supports an assertion directly, doesn't need anything else. These are eyewitness accounts, for instance. The person saw, heard, or experienced something and can comment on it directly. Circumstantial evidence, on the other hand, is a set of circumstances that lets a person reasonably infer that the defendant committed the crime. Unfortunately, circumstantial evidence gets a really bad rap in movies and TV shows. You'll sometimes hear the bad guy on a movie saying, well, you've got a circumstantial evidence, you can't convict me, as if that wasn't enough, as if circumstantial evidence wasn't enough to convict. But that's not actually how the justice system works. In fact, circumstantial and direct evidence are equally valid in court. In fact, there are hundreds of murder cases out there that have been decided on nothing but circumstantial evidence, some of them without a body or a murder weapon. So circumstantial evidence can be very, very powerful. In fact, it may surprise you to know that some of the things that we think are the, the big evidentiary elements, uh, fingerprints, DNA, ballistics, these types of forensic things are technically circumstantial. 
because I can explain them away. Well, sure, my fingerprints were there, but that's because I was there the week before. Or sure, my DNA was there, but I was riding my bike and I fell and I skinned my knee. That's why my DNA is there. Or sure, it was my gun that fired the bullet, but uh, I didn't have the gun on me at the time. So what you can see is that you can go ahead and explain away some of these. So let, let's look at an example. Let's consider a robbery. So police officer goes into court, points to the defendant and says, I saw him steal the victim's wallet. We would call that direct evidence. And assuming we trust the witness, in this case, the police officer, we're essentially done. Now let's change the situation and say that the police officer didn't actually witness the crime directly. I want you to listen here and, and think to yourself, at what point are you convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty? So here's what this looks like. The police officer says that he heard about a robbery, went to it, and saw the defendant running from the scene and chased him down. Okay, probably not enough to convict there. And the defendant was holding the victim's wallet. Okay, that's a bit harder, but maybe somebody else robbed the victim and dropped the wallet, and then our defendant picked it up and um, also had to run to catch a bus, and so that's why he was running and got caught with the victim's wallet. Okay, it's unlikely, but it's not completely out, outlandish. Well, actually, it kind of is. Okay, and there was no one else around, and buses don't service that part of town. And the victim said that she scratched her assailant. And the defendant had two scratch marks on his face. Okay, at this point, we're probably ready to convict. And all of that is what we'd call circumstantial evidence. So with all of that as a backdrop, let's start examining the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. We're going to look at three key questions. The first one, did Jesus really exist? The second one, did Jesus really die? And the third one, did he really rise again? We need all three. Because if he didn't exist, then he didn't die. If he didn't die, he couldn't rise again. So we need all three. And so we're going to use those to make a compelling case and let you decide if you're convinced. Um, as a side note, as part of sermon prep, I'm pretty sure Google thinks I'm a serial killer. <laughs> I'm already seeing ads for defense attorneys. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's look at the first question here. Did Jesus really exist? Well, we have four biblical accounts. Uh, we refer to these as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So sometimes people ask, well, why are there four Gospels? Why do we not just have one? Well, it gives us four unique views of Jesus. And we do the same thing in the secular world. Uh, we have multiple biographies of historical figures. Uh, so for instance, Abraham Lincoln, lots of biographies about him. Some of them focus on his childhood. Some of them focus on his presidency. Others focus on him as a vampire hunter. So lots of different points of view for Abraham Lincoln. In our court case, that means we have four key witnesses. Two of them are direct witnesses. The first one is John. He was one of the 12 disciples, and he was there with Jesus for nearly everything and saw everything firsthand. He is in the best position to provide a detailed and accurate account of the life and times of Jesus. Our second direct witness is Matthew. This is likely uh, the gentleman named Levi, a tax collector from Luke chapter 5. He is a literate person. He is fluent in Greek. He's accustomed to keeping detailed records as a tax collector. So this is good for our case. We have a couple of direct eyewitness testimonies, and that's powerful. We also have two indirect witnesses, Mark. 
Now, Mark is writing under the direct guidance of Peter, who was one of the apostles. And like John, Peter was there for everything. And so Mark is documenting what Peter said. And he records the full experience in all of its ADHD glory uh, that I believe Peter suffered from. And then we have Luke. Luke is writing under the guidance of Paul, who is also an apostle. Now, Luke was a doctor, so as a doctor, he would have been very literate, and he would have been someone who was very good at asking detailed questions. And what Luke did is he went around and gathered direct witness testimonies from uh, a lot of different people who saw things directly and compiled them into a book, the book that we call The Gospel According to Luke. So it's based on a huge number of eyewitness um, contacts. So how many witnesses does it take to convict? Well, typically, if we had one direct witness to a crime that we considered trustworthy, that would be enough. That would be John. Two people seeing it, two direct eyewitnesses would be even better, and that's John and Matthew. What we have is four people providing testimony, and that should definitely be enough to convict. Now, some might counter by saying, okay, now, wait a minute. Those are all biblical accounts. How do I know the Bible is true? Well, first, please watch last week's lesson. Second, There are extra biblical accounts, accounts outside the Bible that tell about Jesus. We have the Roman historian and senator Tacitus, who referred to Jesus, his execution by Pilate, and the existence of the early Christian church. And then we also have the Jewish historian Titus Flavius Josephus, his coolest name ever. Uh, He wrote about Jesus and Christians and John the Baptist, and there are others as well. So what do we have? We have our four detailed witness testimonies, two of them direct eyewitnesses, and multiple extra-biblical accounts. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I submit to you that Jesus really existed. Now let's move on to our second question. Did Jesus really die? Well, we have our four eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, that should be sufficient evidence in a court of law. At the very least, it should be sufficient in the court of public opinion as well, because many of us get our beliefs uh, from the reliable and trustworthy testimony of others. In fact, if you had four trustworthy people telling you something and it was the same thing, chances are you would tend to listen. And we also have extra biblical accounts of Jesus' death. So if we go back to our Jewish historian friend, Titus Flavius Josephus, and I will never get tired of saying his name, just so you know. This is what he wrote. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. So we know that Jesus was sent to the cross to die. But did he actually die? You see, there are those who don't think that he did. In fact, that's actually the official position of Islam, is that Jesus didn't actually die. The theory is that Jesus was only mostly dead. And so basically the theory goes that he simply fainted on the cross. And this is sometimes referred to as the swoon theory. Now, there are some problems with this. The biggest problem with this is the fact that the Roman Empire was really, really good at killing people. They were especially good at killing people. In fact, Rome once crucified 6,000 men on the same day. 
They would keep soldiers at crucifixions to make sure the criminals were dead. Now, this really wouldn't have been a problem for Jesus because, honestly, he nearly died just getting to the cross because he was beaten and whipped and tortured. And then we know that one of the things that happens is a, happened is a Roman soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side to confirm that he was dead. Bottom line, you did not get off a cross unless you were very, very dead. So what do we have? We've got four detailed witness account, or testimonies, two eyewitnesses, extra biblical accounts, and an empire that knows how to make sure a person is dead. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I submit to you that Jesus really died. Now let's get on to the third question. This is the big one, the one that Christianity hangs on. Did Jesus really rise after three days? Now, we still have our four witnesses, which should be enough, but we're going to keep going. We also have our Jewish historian friend, Titus Flavius Josephus, and he wrote this in A.D. 116. Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. That is an account outside the Bible by a Jewish, non-Christian historian. Then there's the story. The story is a little bit strange. The story doesn't make sense. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all these other people claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died, and that he rose from the dead. Now, for a lot of us, that seems perfectly normal today because we've heard the story so much, but that was not the story that you wanted to tell back then. No one would think to make up a story like that. You see, 100 years on either side of Jesus, there were other Jewish teachers, great Jewish, Jewish teachers, who claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus was not the only one to claim that he was the Messiah. These Jewish leaders were viewed as revolutionaries by Rome, just like Jesus was. Rome killed them. They stayed dead. Their movements then stopped. None of these movements claimed that their leader was alive again. None of them claimed that their leader came back to life because that would have been ridiculous. It would have been a ridiculous story to make. And then the story gets even worse. Okay, they said that women were the first ones to find the empty tomb. Now, you have to understand the culture at the time. Women at the time didn't have any standing in the culture. They were considered unreliable witnesses. And so... That is not how you would tell the story if you wanted to convince someone is by saying, well, the first people to witness it were women. That is not how you would tell that story. And then on top of that, they said that Jesus' own disciples didn't believe it. It says that when the women came and talked to them, that they were like, no, this is a nonsense story. So the disciples were actually the first recorded skeptics. So the disciples didn't even believe it. And then when Jesus did appear to them, there was at least one or two there that, that, that weren't able to see it. One in particular, we call him Doubting Thomas because he wasn't there and he's like, no, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And so Jesus had to appear to him as well. Look, no one would make up a story like this. Making up a story from scratch, if I wanted to have a really cool story, this is not the story I would tell because this was a completely new paradigm that didn't follow any religious norms at the time and still doesn't to this day. The only reason that you would document such a ludicrous story is if that's what actually happened. 
Now, obviously, that's circumstantial, but we're going to keep stacking on some more things here. So let's uh, look at a few other ones. One of them was the body was missing. Now, it would have been in Rome and the Jewish leadership's best interest to produce a body, but they didn't. Now, some have said, well, you know, the the reason the tomb was empty is because they went to the wrong tomb. Well, no, this was in a very public place. It was well known. No one misplaced the tomb. It was the right tomb. Additionally, we're told that more than 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. In fact, Paul shares this to the church in Corinth. He says, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Now, simply claiming a bunch of people saw Jesus isn't necessarily very compelling, but I want you to pay attention to what Paul is actually claiming. What he's saying is that these people saw Jesus, and he's saying they are still alive. You can go and talk to them. You can go and ask them, what did you see? What did you experience? What did you witness? In fact, the Gospels and Paul in his letters are encouraging people to go and talk to these eyewitnesses. It wasn't just a, hey, believe me, a lot of people saw him. It was a, a lot of people saw him, go talk to them. Get what they saw. So we have a missing body and a claim that more than 500 people saw him. Now, each of these can be individually doubted. But if you bring them together, they stack together powerfully. For instance, uh, let's take the missing body. Well, maybe the disciples stole it. And maybe the guards were in on it. I mean, sure, they would have been killed for that, but maybe they were in on it. I mean, I guess that could be a thing. Oh, and 500 people saw Jesus? Well, maybe they were so heartbroken about Jesus' death that they collectively hallucinated, and they thought they saw him, and the more they talked to each other, the more they believed each other. Okay, kind of weird, but now take these two things together. And so what you have when you bring them together is that you have a missing body and people claiming that they saw him. If the people were having communal hallucinations, then they could have simply been shown the tomb and that'd be the end of it. Oh, you 500 people think you saw Jesus? There's a body right there. Oh, okay, maybe I didn't. Maybe it was somebody else. But they saw Jesus and there was no body. So those two things taken together are powerful. So, so far we have four detailed witness testimonies, two eyewitnesses, the account of a Jewish historian historian with a wicked cool name. Uh, We have a ridiculous story, an empty tomb, and hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus alive. Now is a good time, I think, to introduce something called Occam's Razor. Uh, This is often used in courtrooms. It is not the latest product from Gillette. It is a principle or a way of thinking attributed to a 14th century Franciscan friar, William of Ockham. And it can be expressed in a number of different ways, but for our purposes, I would say that it says this, that when you have two competing theories that have the same outcome, the simpler one is the better. So I want you to ask yourself, which of these two theories is the simpler one? So here's option one, theory one. Jesus' followers couldn't handle the fact that Jesus died. So the four gospel writers conspired together to create a tale about a risen Jesus. And they weren't good at storytelling, so they foolishly included women and skeptics in their narrative. And they bribed the guards at the tomb with enough money to take their families and run away. And they stole the body and got rid of it somewhere no one would find it. And they convinced 500 plus people to lie and say they saw Jesus and to keep lying if anyone asked. That's option one. 
Option two, Jesus actually rose from the dead. Which of those is simpler? But wait, there's more. Something changed. And we can't miss this. In fact, this may be the most powerful point of evidence that we have on this. Something changed. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran and hid. In fact, Peter actually denied even knowing Christ. He did that three times. I don't even know the guy. They ran and hid, but then something changed. Suddenly, those same people that ran and hid were now boldly proclaiming Christ had risen, and they were willing to die for it nearly overnight. Imagine I called you up onto the stage, and I said, hey, tell everybody, what's your favorite color? And you said, red, because you're weird. Okay, and I said, okay, well, here's $50. I'm going to give you $50. I want you to tell everybody that your favorite color is green. Chances are you'd say, oh, my favorite color is green. Thank you for the $50. And you walk off stage. You'd be good with it. These people were asked to change their answer as well. But instead of being offered $50, they were offered the opportunity to stay alive and to not die a horrible, tortured death. And guess what? They chose death. Most people don't die for a lie. In fact, this whole thing was very confusing to the Roman rulers at the time. A Roman governor uh, by the name of Pliny the Younger, he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor at the time talking about this weird sect calling themselves Christians. And he was perplexed because he kept killing them and they kept growing in number. And he couldn't figure out what that was about. What causes a person to go from afraid to martyr? See, there are people who will die for a cause. Typically, they've been indoctrinated into it. They've been given beliefs throughout their entire life. And so they have a particular way of thinking, and they're willing to die for it. We've seen that with 9-11, terrorist attacks, things like that. But what causes a group of people to go from being scared to willingly martyred seemingly overnight? They experience something incredibly life-changing to the point where they were willing to die for it. Now, could a person succumb to these mass hallucinations, bad stories, secret packs? Maybe. But when you start seeing your friend lit on fire to light a Roman courtyard, you start to have a real sense of, okay, do I really believe this? And they did. They had to proclaim a risen Christ because they couldn't not. And that's what they did. It didn't matter what Rome did to them. It didn't matter if they were fed to the lions or lit on fire or their bodies torn apart. They had to keep proclaiming a risen Christ. And if that wasn't enough, here we are 2,000 years later still talking about it. In fact, today, Christianity is still the largest world religion on the planet. So don't miss that. In fact, I like the way that uh, Mark Clark says it in his book, uh, Everyday Apologetics. Not only does all the evidence counter the idea that the resurrection was a hoax, it highlights again the unlikely rise of the early church. Overnight, a group of poor peasants starts to claim something completely against their worldview, and one of the fastest and most influential movements in the history of the world is born. Why did it grow so quickly? Why were men and women, even close family and friends, so willing to die for Christianity? Jesus' followers died because they claimed they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. 
So here we are. We've got multiple detailed biblical and extra-biblical eyewitness accounts, a ludicrous story, an empty tomb, hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus alive, people who went from hiding to martyrs seemingly overnight, and a movement that swept the entire world that we still see today. You could believe the skeptics who say that Jesus' followers couldn't handle the fact that Jesus died, that gospel writers colluded, that 500 witnesses conspired, that the guards were bribed, that they were all bad storytellers, that the body was stolen, and that they were all willing to die horrible deaths rather than have to admit they were lying about something, and that Christianity became really, really big because a bunch of people thought it was really cool. Or you could apply Occam's razor and come to a more rational, more logical conclusion. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I submit to you that Jesus really was raised from the dead. You can clap for that. So we had fun with this, but this topic is incredibly serious. Jesus really was a real person who really did live. He really was put to death, and he really did rise again. I hope that you can see that not only is there evidence for this, there is overwhelming evidence for this. As we discussed last week, be open to this conversation. Be open to when your family or friends or neighbors have questions about this, who say, well, isn't all religion the same? Did Jesus really rise again? Be willing to have the conversation. Be ready to engage with them and be ready to provide evidence for Christianity, for the resurrection of Christ. And so with gentleness and respect, always be ready to explain your hope as a believer. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I thank you for your son and the truth of his resurrection. God, I just thank you for the reality that we have so that we can live confident knowing that your son came here, that he died for us, and that he rose again. God, I thank you for each person here today, and I pray that each person here would be able to speak with the boldness of the early church, that they would be able to respond to the critics, respond to family, friends, and neighbors, God, that they'd be able to have a conversation with them and tell them about Jesus. God, I love that we have these feelings inside of us, and I love that you also give us the logic and reason to be able to conclude that your son truly was here that he truly did die for us, and that he truly rose again. God, thank you for your son. It is in his name we pray. Amen.